For our scripture reading this morning, you can turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 25, reading verse 12 through the end of the chapter. Acts 25, verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar shalt thou go. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king, saying, There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix, about whom, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him. To whom I answered, It is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die. Before that, he which is accused, have the accusers face to face, and have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. Therefore, when they were come hither, without any delay on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth. Against whom, when the accuser stood up, they brought none accusation of such things as I supposed, but had certain questions against him of their own superstition, and of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I doubted of such manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem and there be judged of these matters. But when Paul had appealed to be reserved unto the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said unto Festus, I would also hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, thou shalt hear him. And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and Bernice with great pomp, and was entered into the place of hearing, with the chief captains and principal men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought forth. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all men which are here present with us, ye see this man, about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. And when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and that he himself hath appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. Wherefore, I have brought him forth before you, and specially before thee, O King Agrippa, that, after examination had, I might have somewhat to write. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner, and not withal to signify the crimes laid against him. Let us pray. Father, we come once again to your revealed word that you have given to us. Lord, we know that by your grace you have both moved men to write it and you have preserved it for us. And part of our worship to you is to read it together and then hear it preached. And Lord, just as we need physical nourishment, each one of us, we also need spiritual nourishment. And we pray that as we are gathered together now and have your word open, that you would feed us through the word, that you would write it on our hearts so that we would not sin against you, so that we would know you more and know your will more and know what you have done in the past and what you expect of us today. 
Lord, we ask your blessing and that your spirit might work in each one of us through this sermon. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, as we say every Lord's Day, it is certainly good to be gathered together. And uh, it's especially good to have God's Bible, the Word of God, in our hands. And um, as we look around us and we see our own nation and how it has just wandered so far away, um, I'm reminded of what Charles Spurgeon once said. He said, if one doesn't wander very far from the Word of God, one won't wander very far. And uh, so, again, just so thankful that, we, uh, we, that God has put in us those of us who are here to be Bible-believing Christians, amen, those who believe the Word of God, every scintilla, every jot, every tittle, and uh, so important for us as we take up our text this morning. The last Lord's Day morning that we were gathered together here in the book of Acts, we found the Apostle Paul for the fourth time, amen, standing and giving his defense before Festus. And as he was doing so, he was led, I believe, by this, the Spirit of God to appeal unto Caesar, which without a doubt was a providential appeal. And again, that's a word that we keep hearing in our text over and over again, the providence of God, God overseeing these things. And there are many men who you read commentaries and think Paul made a mistake by appealing to Caesar. Nothing could be further from the truth, brethren. And again, we notice there, don't we, in verses 11 and 12 of our text, let's read that there together. Look at verses 11 and 12. Look what it says, uh, Acts chapter 25, verses 11 to 12. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar thou shalt go. And again, as we... See Paul's providential appeal. This again is the vehicle, if you will, again, God's protective vehicle to, uh, to make sure that Paul makes it to Rome and ultimately fulfilling the promise that Jesus made to him. Again, this is always in the background of things, brother, and this is where Paul is headed. Again, all of these trials and the hearing that he's going to soon stand before King Agrippa and Bernice, this is all something that God is, he is protecting Paul. This, unto Caesar you shall go, again, is a holy vehicle that God is using to keep Paul in the protection of the Roman government and keeping him out of the hands of those Jews who were indeed trying to have him killed. In fact, we see in verses 20 and 21, this is kind of a, kind of a unique text. There's just a lot of things that are going on again, and some of it is rehearsed again, but I want you to see there again a word, this idea that God is preserving Paul. Through that statement, I want to go to Caesar, and then as God uses Festus, and we're going to see here, he sends him off. You want to see Caesar? Unto Caesar thou shalt go. To the unlearned ear. That just seems like a statement that really doesn't mean that much, but in the economy of God, again, it is a God again watching over his preacher, taking him to where he promised he would go. I want you to see a word here in verses 20 and 21 that really helps to undergird, to underpin this idea of Paul being preserved. Look there, if you would, through this 
appeal that he makes. Look at verse 20 there, the Bible says, And because uh, I found I doubted of such manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these matters. But when Paul had appealed to be reserved, you see that word right there, that's a very important biblical word that's used in the text. Under the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. What does that word reserved mean there? Again, me, I read text and I, you know, I'm weird that way. That's how my brain works. It's like, what does this word literally mean when Paul appealed to Caesar to be reserved? Well, I'm glad you asked this morning. It literally means that which is kept for another or future use. Literally, this is the word that, that is what it means. That which is retained from present use or disposal. So again, we're seeing here that through his appeal to Caesar, God uses Festus, you're going to Caesar, and this is where you're going to go. You're going to go to Augustus. That thereby preserving, if you will, reserving the Apostle Paul for his, ultimately, as he's going to go, get to Rome and begin to preach the gospel there in Rome. All of this, again, is an amazing thing. It really is. It also does another thing for us, brethren, this morning as we consider our text. It places him on the highway that leads to his fifth glorious God-given occasion to stand before a king and his wife. See, again, none of this is by accident. This stuff is being carried along by God. All of these things are tied together as we consider our text where he defends himself. And this is really important. Again, we've seen this. Again, this is the fourth time. There's going to be a fifth time. And when he really stands before King Agrippa in chapter 26, it's more of a hearing because Agrippa had no authority there. He was, he was over Festus and Felix, but he had no authority there. So it's literally just a hearing as he's, uh, if you will, curious about this, this, this uh, Jesus that we're going to look at here in just a little bit. His curiosity is opened up there. But Paul, again, will defend himself, and then the fulfilling of the Old Testament promises of God. Again, brethren, this is what you see over and over again, which are found alone in our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ alone. This is what he's doing, the promises of God, the promises of God. What did God promise? Well... Again, look at Acts chapter 26. Again, this is where this takes us to. Again, Paul gets before Agrippa. And look there, if you would, at verse number 6 of chapter 26. The promises of God. The promises of God. This is something that we're going to see over and over again. And brethren, again, for the fourth time and then for the fifth time, God is laying out such a glorious practical thing for us. We see how Paul evangelizes. We should then evangelize in that same fashion. We see Paul's boldness. We should be bold like Paul. I mean, there's so many practical things. God isn't repeating this just to repeat it. We've said it 100,000 times as we've been through this text. For the fifth time, we'll see it again. Look there at verse number 6. He's standing before Agrippa here now, which we're going to look, Lord willing, next week at. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Again, there it is. What promise? Unto which promise our 12 tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. And again, this is the idea here. Paul constantly referring back to the promises of God. Again, I've said it a thousand times. He's the only one who can make a promise and keep it perfectly. He is authoritative in that. He is sovereign in that. And he will indeed make a promise. And he will indeed keep it. And this is what he's doing with Paul. Again, through this, unto Caesar thou shalt go. That is a divine providential appeal whereby Paul will be reserved in the vehicle again that takes him to Agrippa and ultimately to Rome where he will indeed stand there and <coughs> stand and, and again unabashedly and unashamedly preach 
the, God, uh, the gospel. Let me say it again. So the, to the unassuming ear, the statement unto Caesar thou shalt go has little meaning. But in God's economy, it is indeed the holy vehicle that sets this thing all up. For our text and the text that Lord willing will be next week, it is indeed where God is going to have Paul there. Now look there at verse number 13. If you would, this morning, Acts chapter 5. Look at verse number 13. Look what the Bible says there. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. Well, brethren, again, Luke here, by way of his inspired pen, introduces us to King Agrippa and to his wife, Bernice, as they arrive in Caesarea to greet the new governor. As you know, the governorship has changed, and so he's there to greet him. And we've already traced... Brethren, the long lineage of King Agrippa. Again, we could spend a little time there, but we remember that he was the son of Herod Agrippa I, who died by being eaten by worms after putting James to death. And we see that in Acts chapter 12. Let's just go there. I like to hear God's word, amen? I like to hear what it says just by way of reminder. Look at Acts chapter 12. Now, this is Agrippa's father. This is the man who was eaten by worms back here in Acts chapter 12 and a most horrible death, amen? A most painful, horrible, stunning death. And here we have it right here, Acts chapter 12. Look at verse number 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This is the same one. This is his father, and here's King Agrippa II standing there, as you know. Now, both Claudius and Nero appointed Agrippa, the ruler of several kingdoms and cities in the Holy Land. And again, this is as we see how their government is set up, as we see how it's, it's, uh, the, the governorships are ruled across the, the, uh, the continent of Rome, if you will. It's an amazing thing. Here at the time of Paul's trial, he was king over many ter- territories northeast of Galilee. Now, Bernice is a new introduction. She is someone we haven't met before. She was the blood sister of both Agrippa and Drusilla. Remember, the wife of Felix, who we met back in chapter 24? They, indeed, were sisters. It's, a, it's an amazing thing because Bernice, again, this is what we see, brethren. This is, these are the kinds of people who are in power. These are the kinds of people who are standing there ruling, they think, over Paul and over the situation. She did indeed, Bernice, had married her uncle, King Herod of, if you will, uh, Calchis. And after Herod's death, after her husband died then, she then became the mistress of Roman general Titus and lived with him in Rome before he became emperor. In fact, she had a name. She was well known, this Bernice, across the Roman Empire. She was once described as a Jewish Cleopatra on a smaller scale. If that gives you any idea of who we're dealing with here again. Amen? We think we have evil, wicked rulers, and we do. They had them too. It's a stunning thing. And here's Paul being faithful, preaching the word of God. Now you look there again, as we're going to again kind of lump this thing together. This text is a little unique in that. We're just going to kind of lump things together. Draw, if you will, allow it to speak out to us, exegete some things to us here, some very good basic principles that we can all use. Look at verse 14 there of that chapter. We'll read 14 through 18 together here now. So we understand King Agrippa, the father, uh, his father, of course, killed James and was eaten of worms. And then this guy here, we, we know him. And we understand now who Bernice is. Look at verse number 14. And again, 
This is very important for us to understand, for us to get a hold of that we are, the Spirit of God is allowing us, I want you to think about this for a moment, the Spirit of God is allowing us here to peep in on a private conversation that's had between Festus and Agrippa. Think of that for a moment, okay? Think of how miraculous that is, that God would somehow, in his miraculous way, record this for us, because it's a private conversation. And here Luke, as he's inspired by God, writes this down for us. This is how their conversation went. Look here, if you would, verse number 14. And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king, saying, There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix, about whom when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him. To whom I answered, It is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die. Now, brethren, as you read this text, you'll see some very, very much, some parallels to our own government. Think, think of this for a moment. Again, these are biblical principles that are set up in place. Even Rome had some biblical principles that were set up, just like our government used to, amen? You'll read this thing, you'll think, oh yeah, that sounds like our courtroom. That sounds like something our courts desire, used, to, used to desire and drive for. Listen to what it says. To whom I answered, it is not the matter of the Romans to deliver any man to die. Before that which is accused, have the accusers face to face, and have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. There it is, brethren. There's a good, sound, biblical principle that our courts have. Well, they used to. <laughs> Many of us know now what buys courts. If you have enough money, you can, you can get off. But this is how, really how God designed it, even under the Jewish law. Amen? There was what? At the mouth of two or more witnesses. There was always witnesses, and you were always able to confront those witnesses, to be there present, to con same thing with us. Oh, that's how it used to be, amen? Until things have really dived into the turlet, as they say. Now you look there again as we continue reading on in our text there. The Bible says in verse 17, Therefore, when they were come hither without any delay on the morrow, I sat in the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth, against whom, when the accusers stood up, they brought none accusations of such things as I supposed. Now again, brethren, that, I suppose, is a very important text for us, a very important statement that the Bible makes concerning this, this thing here. In verses 14 through 21, again, as I said, we are indeed supernaturally allowed to hear this private conversation between Festus and King Agrippa. Now, this is interesting about King Agrippa. Again, just something that we have to consider as we see the providential hand of God moving in Paul's life as he's moving him along. It's interesting that King Agrippa, despite his lineage, was quite learned in the Jewish customs of his day. In fact, many historians, Josephus and some of these men, have written concerning this Agrippa. Listen to this. He was described as the scholar head of the Jewish faith. I mean, again, this, this man knew a lot about the Jewish faith, even though he had such a weird lineage behind him, such a hatred for the Jewish people. So therefore, Festus, he is more than happy. He says, hey, i got to tell you about this, this man, Paul. i got to tell you about this case that I have. And he's more than happy to hear what the king would have to say concerning that, because, again, he was very learned in the law. And you'll see in our text... The real issue they're having here is that they've tried to accuse Paul over and over and over again. He's been found innocent every single time. Now, the problem with that is, is that when he sends him to Caesar Augustus, 
as Lysias, you remember, wrote the letter when he, sent, when, he, when he sent him off, there has to be a letter sent with the prisoner, and they're having a hard time finding anything, any kind of accusation against Paul. In fact, if you look in the text, you'll see there, hey, uh, can you help me out here, Agrippa, because I've got to send this letter, and I've got to have something to write. And at this point, I have nothing, absolutely nothing to say. Because again, over and over again, Paul is found innocent. In fact... We see this here in this text. He says, as he begins to explain to him, he says, they bring these charges, but not what I expected. He was expecting insurrection. He was inspecting, expecting some kind of a crime against Rome. He says, I, there's nothing. I, I, it's not at all what I expected. And certainly nothing, he says, that would warrant Paul's execution, who was indeed a Roman citizen in good standing, as we know. Again, another providence as we look, another protection of God for Paul as he's on his way to Rome. In fact, we see there, don't we, in verses 16 through 18, we see this protection. Again, he's laying these crimes. They're here. The crimes are not valid. In fact, look at verses 24 and 25. In verses 16 through 18, his, his innocence is confirmed. And look at in verses 24 and 25 of Acts chapter 25. Look what the Bible says there. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all men which are here present with us, Ye see this man about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live anymore. Again, they're demanding his death. And he just keeps saying, but there's nothing. There's nothing here, nothing what I expected, not a thing. In verse number 25 there, the Bible says, but when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death and that he himself had appeared to, er, appealed unto Augustus, I have determined to send him. So again, Affirmation after affirmation. Remember, we talked along a few months or weeks ago concerning the truth. Paul was relying on the truthfulness of God, on the truthfulness of God's word, on the truthfulness that he has certainly uh, put forth. That is for sure. In fact, if you look there, this is uh, we remember that Lysias had already stated that Paul was innocent. That was back in Acts chapter 23, verses 28 and 29. Remember? Same thing. Well, i got to write something. So he did indeed send a letter, but he talked about how goofy this thing was. What a charade it really was when he sent Paul off. And again, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen to Festus. I've got to have something. I've got to send a letter. I've got to send the epistle off with him, and I have nothing. He is affirmed innocent. He's affirmed innocent. In fact, brethren, there's yet another affirmation of Paul's innocence. Look at Acts chapter 26. It's before Agrippa himself. Now, think of this, brethren, what a foolish thing this is becoming. Because, again, all, they, all these Jews who, who hate the Lord Jesus Christ, who hate the preaching of the gospel, all they can think about is murder in the heart. It's a stunning thing. It just is, it's enveloped them. It's completely gotten a hold of them. And all they can consider is how can we kill this preacher. It is quite a stunning thing when you consider that. But look here. Look at the affirmed affirmation once again of Paul's innocent. Look at chapter 26. Look at verse 30 and 31. And we're going to, Lord willing, get into Paul's testimony, which he's going to give. That's why before Agrippa, it's more of a hearing. It's not really a trial. It's a hearing, and he's going to give forth his, his uh, testimony but look there, verse 30, after Agrippa hears all this stuff, verse 30, and when he had thus spoken, the king rose up and the governor Bernice, the governor and Bernice, and they, they that sat with them, 
And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, this man has done nothing worthy, listen, of death or of bonds. Remember that? Remember how scared they were when they, when they arrested him and they found out he was a Roman citizen? They were scared to death because they, even, they, had, they had even arrested him without any cause or accusation. Here, he just says, there is nothing. There's nothing of Paul's. See again, brother, this is the hand of God protecting Paul. You're going to think, fix, you're a broken record, I know, but I just, I'm so amazed at how God works. I can't help it, brethren. It is such music to our ears, is it not? Instead, Festus says this, there's no crime against Rome, but they have this issue. There's this thing. They have certain questions, and there's a dispute that they're having concerning what? Concerning their own customs, and especially concerning, as the scripture says here, that Paul had affirmed, Paul had asserted that there was this man named Jesus who was not dead anymore. Amen? I mean, what a stunning thing when you think about that. The foundation of all of his preaching is what? The gospel. And here's Paul continuing through every trial, every battle. He is just constantly reminding all of us. As the Spirit of God is reminding all of us this morning of that great and glorious thing that we're going to celebrate here in just a moment. That God would indeed send his Son. He who the Bible says was made sin for us. He who knew no sin to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of Christ in Him. Think of that for a moment. What a blessing, brethren. This is what it's about. This is what Paul is doing. He's just, again, what did we call it? It's theologically, it's Christ-centric. It's just God-centric, Christ-centric, Bible-centric. All of it is just concerning what God is doing. It's quite a stunning thing. In fact, if you look there at verse 19 of chapter 25, that interesting word that he uses here, look there if you would, Acts 25, look at verse number 19. The Bible says, But had certain questions against him of their own superstition, and of one Jesus which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Now, brethren, as we all know, the cross... We sang, we sang some really good songs this morning, brethren. You think of the, how they're centered on what Christ did. Think of that. You know the only way, when we sing that song, the old rugged cross, the only way for one to look at the cross and say that it has this wonderful attraction to me is when one has been converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way. When we consider, we look at the cross, I mean, the world mocks the cross. In fact, we're going to see Agrippa when he, well, when we get towards the end of our text, when, when Paul's there and Agrippa finally says, it's driving you mad, Paul. Will thou convict me to be a sinner or a Christian? That's a mockery. He's mocking the cross. That's what the world does. When you stand and sing, that this cross, this old bloody cross, has a wonderful attraction to me. There's only one way it has an attraction to you, and that is that you understand who took your place. You understand who shed his blood for you. You understand the importance of what that means eternally. And this is a thing that they're missing. This is a thing that they're all missing. Because, again, Paul continually, constantly refers back not to a superstition, 
not to some kind of a weird, spooky thing, but the promises of God that have been fulfilled in the scriptures, and we can go there, and we can read it, and we can hear it, and we can understand it. Praise his name. Brethren, Dean and I were talking yesterday at our elders' meeting just how blessed we are. And what do I mean by that? How many Bibles do you have in your home? How many? I've got a lot. You guys, some of you have your phones here. (laughs) Some of you can, at the click of a button, you have the Word of God in your hand. We have been blessed with light beyond measure the world has never seen. And yet, men and women, children, have never been more ignorant of the Word of God in American history. It is a stunning thing. We are going to be held more accountable because we've been given much more light. It's just a stunning thing. And yet, men in their hardness and the hardening of their hearts and their blasphemous thoughts towards God blaspheme and mock the cross. And off they go. Just like you and I did. Yeah, that's right. Hey, I'm not forgetting me in this. I know how I was. I know what I did. Blaspheming, cross-mocking devil. Until this gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, shined his light upon my dark heart. We know that the cross, Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection were indeed the foundations of Paul's preaching. This really, brethren, is the contention that we're seeing. It is that rubbing, if you will, of the old covenant with the new covenant. It's the rubbing of the cross up against that, if you will, the, the, the religiosity of the day. Do we see any difference today, brethren? Not really. It is the, the point of contention. The cross is the, the point of contention. What took place there is the point of contention. It's religiosity versus the finished work of the cross, and they are indeed rubbing and have been rubbing and banging for near 2,000 years now. It continues on, even, even, even here. It began here, it continues on, and it will, because you know there's one that hates the cross, that hates the Lord Jesus Christ more than we can even begin to imagine. You know who it is. Your enemy and mine. The one the Bible says who is seeking, roaring to devour. That's what he does. He hates it more than anything. In fact, this is what we see. The people that he's using is quite an amazing thing. It really is. These truths confirm in the Old Testament the promises of God and were indeed the linchpins of salvation. This is the contention. This is what I said. In fact, I want to read, and I want us to read together. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've read it. We've heard it. We've read it a thousand times. I'm sure you have like I have. But again, brethren, if you're like me, and I pray you are, that the Word of God never gets old. The Word of God never runs out of its, as Dean and I were talking yesterday. It's just, it's so deep. It's so uh, all-encompassing. And even as a Christian for over 30-some-odd years now, I'm still amazed when I read it. And I pray to God that you are too. 
I pray to God that he's given you that desire, that, if you will, that hunger for the word of God. I pray he has. Listen carefully. This theme, this foundation, this ever-constant theme, chapter 15, look at verse number 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto the gospel which I have preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye, are, wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. That's a glorious word, saved. Think of how you thought of that, brethren, before you were saved. <laughs> See, I always thought as a Catholic, that these evangelicals were making these words up. What? No. They're biblical words. Think of that. By which you are saved. Amen. If you keep in memory that which I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Again, there's Paul. We've read this a hundred times. Paul is not writing this under the inspiration of God as his own, if you will, thoughts. He's going back to the promises of God. Just like he, Paul is on trial for the promises of God. That which God promised our forefathers. That which God promised the world that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would die for the sins of his people. To what? To save them from their sins. To redeem them. To sanctify them. To save them. And yes, this is what's most important to us. Look at what he says there. For I delivered on you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. There it again, the promises of God. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. And after that he was seen above five hundred brethren at once of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. So again, this wasn't something that men made up. This wasn't superstition. See, the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the grave and he presented himself alive. In fact, Luke records, remember in Acts chapter 1, with many infallible proofs. And this is where it's based on. This is why Paul can stand there before kings and queens and everything else and just simply with his feet shod with the, with the readiness of the gospel and stand there firmly preaching and believing every scintilla of it. Can you imagine a preacher that doesn't believe that? There are lots of them. There are lots of them who do not believe what this Bible teaches. It's a stunning thing. Look what he says. Verse number 7. After that, he was seen of James, then all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. What a glorious thing that Paul experienced. What a glorious thing that he is experiencing even now as God is taking him, if you will, to Rome. In fact, I like what one pastor said. Poor Festus. Listen, brethren. Listen carefully. He had in his custody one of heaven's greatest ambassadors. A man far greater than any Caesar of Rome or any philosopher of Greece. And Festus failed to see it. Listen. Eternity came and knocked 
But Festus couldn't not even be bothered to so much as go to the door. You know why he didn't go to the door? Because he's dead in his sins and in his trespasses. He's dead. He's not sick. He's dead. You see that foolish picture of, you know, that painting we see, that foolish one. It's foolishness, right? I mean, you got Jesus on one side of the door and there's a man on the other side of the door and, and, uh, and you know, he, he, the, the doorknob is on the inside like the man can open the door of his own will and then the knob's gone from the outside. Actually, if you had a true picture of that, you'd have a picture of Festus. You'd have a picture of Agrippa. They'd both be laying dead on the other side of the door with no hope apart from God coming and making them alive. Period. And this is what this preacher says. Poor Festus. He's got this. He's right here. One of the greatest, if you will, ambassadors that God ever sent. And he says this. He was in touch with truths that are the most sublime in all the world. And he did not know it. Eternity came and knocked, but Festus could not be bothered to so much as go to the door. This truth is, of course, as I said, the same with Agrippa. It's the same with Bernice. And every soul, every single soul that's dead in their sins. The gospel can be presented, and they will not be bothered one minute, one second, to even begin to reach for the door because they cannot apart from the working of the Spirit of God in their hearts. And neither could we, again, brethren, as we will kind of see here, this stunning mockery of the truth, stunning mockery by, if you will, Bernice and Agrippa. In fact, it's interesting because if you look there at verses 22 and 23 of Acts chapter 25, you see a strange curiosity. Now this is interesting, isn't it? Because there can be a strange curiosity concerning when one would say that there was a man who died, but he's alive. <laughs> I mean, that's a, stra- that's a strange curiosity. Sometimes you can have a strange curiosity concerning that. And you know who has it? It's very religious people. They think they know it. They think they understand it, but they have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ whatsoever. There's a strange curiosity with it at times. In fact, we see this here with Agrippa. Look here, if you would, at verses 22 and 23 of Acts chapter 25. Look at this response, which is really interesting. Acts chapter 25, look at verses 22 and 23. Then Agrippa said unto Festus, I would also hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, thou shalt hear him. And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and Bernice with great pomp, again, you know, they are the center of attention. (laughs) This is what high-powered, for the most part, people do. They're the center of attention of all of these things. It's, it's It's like the emperor, right? There were emperors who had very high, thought very highly of themselves. In fact, there was one who said that, at the funeral, he wanted to be the center of attention. He's dead and gone, but he wants to be the center of attention. At the wedding, he wants to be the center of attention. And this is this great pomp and circumstance when, when, when they come rolling in. There's this great, unbelievable pomp and circumstance because they want to be the center of attention. And this is what happens. The Bible says there, with great pomp, and was entered into the place of hearing, with the chief captains and principal men of the city 
at Festus' command, Paul was brought forth. That's a stunning thing. He's curious in a weird kind of way. Again, he understands the Jewish custom, but he's, he's, he's curious about what Paul said. This man who he says is alive. Again, there's a strange kind of weird kind of curiosity that he has. And he says, I want to hear it myself. I want to hear what Paul has to say myself. And it is a stunning thing. And again, as I said, there's this weird curiosity about these truths. But there's absolutely no trust and there's no salvation in the truths for them because they will not trust. They will not believe. In fact, let me just again as we bring this kind of to a close, look at Acts chapter 26. This is where it ends. Again, Paul's preaching. There's this curiosity that he has. And many people, you know, will go to this text a lot of times. And yes, this teaches us so many things about Paul's character. It teaches us so many things about his, if you will, the way that he evangelized. But it also teaches us this. Look at there, if you would, at verse number 27. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Again, what is Paul leaning on? The Old Testament. It is amazing. I I don't want to get sidetracked, but just think of this for a moment. I think we were talking about this, Dean, yesterday as well. Isn't it interesting how people think that the Old Testament has no bearing on them? Isn't it interesting that most Christians have no idea what the Old Testament really is all about? What it all entails. You realize that in order to have a proper understanding of the New Testament, you must have a good, sound, biblical understanding of the Old. You understand that, right? But no, people open their Bibles at Matthew and never look. That's not what Paul did. That's not what we do here. You've got to understand. Listen, can I just give you an example? And I don't want to get sidetracked. But you remember Jesus when he's talking to the, uh, hey, uh, um, they're, they're talking about the law. And he's, he said, well, you should have done this, and you should have done this as well. You should have kept the law, and you should have done these other weightier matters of the law also. So he's standing there one time, and he, and he says to them, listen, you, you'll strain out a gnat. Remember this? You'll strain out a gnat and you'll swallow a camel. How do we understand that as Americans? What do we look, what, what, is, what does he mean by that? If you understand in the Old Testament law, both of those animals were unclean. They were not allowed to be eaten either one. So you know what they would do? They would take their water pots that would sit outside, possibly gnats could get in there, so they would actually put screens over the top of their drinking pictures, and they would pour water. They would strain out the gnat because they were afraid that they might eat an unclean animal. And Jesus said, but you'll eat a camel. You'll just chow down on that thing because of your unholiness. See, that's what you have to understand. That what Paul is doing here, he's tying it all together. The promises of God, how they affect us today and how they will on into the future. You cannot, I've said it a million times, I think Howard's getting tired of me saying this, you cannot unhitch from the Old Testament. You must have a proper biblical understanding of the Old Testament, the law in the Old Testament, all of these things to understand really what's taking place. It's absolutely necessary. Or you will indeed come up with some of the craziest interpretations you've ever seen, ones that are the farthest thing from the mind of God. Now look there again. This mocking the truth. 
Verse 27. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know thou believest. And then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost persuadest thou me, although almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian? Well, brethren, first of all, Paul knows one thing. No man can persuade another man to be a Christian. You understand that. Paul clearly understands that. You're faithful in the preaching, whether you're a lady, whether you're a young child who knows the Bible, or whether you're a single, whatever you are. You're faithful in that preaching, but you persuade nobody. You've got the persuasion of a wall when it comes to these spiritual deep things. You can't persuade anybody. It is the Spirit of God that persuades. It's the Spirit of God that awakens one from the dead. It's the Spirit of God who regenerates the heart and the mind. It's the Spirit of God who moves and does these things. You're just a vessel like Paul. That's what we are. We are to be faithful vessels. Can I tell you one little more thing that just popped in my head? Okay, I will. Long ago, Bev remembers Pastor Steve. Oh, yeah, Bonnie remembers Pastor Steve. Here, many of us, some of us do here. We've, we've been around a while. And uh, we used to go out, we, we'd, we'd go out and call on people in their homes, right? And uh, one particular time, this lady was very interested in having us coming, so we went to her home. And uh, her husband was there. And uh, we presented the gospel. <laughs> and it was a stunning thing because she visited the church, thought it was great. We, pre- we actually presented the gospel. Got our Bibles out. Hey, here's, you know, here's what the Bible says about you before you're saved. And here's the gospel. And this is why God sent his son. And this, the, you know, all of these truths, right? And you know what she did? She kicked us out. She kicked us out of the house. You need to leave right now. Instead of hearing the gospel and understanding the gospel, she thought she knew it. But you open the Bible and you present the true gospel and they kick you out. Because they are religious. Brethren, religiosity rubs and battles against the cross. They have been bumping against each other since the beginning, the dawning of time. It is the same today. It's the same here. King Agrippa, right there, hearing the gospel presented, this man who you said was dead, now you proclaim he's alive. Yes, his death, burial, his resurrection. And he just says, you're mad. And then he mocks the cross. That's what unregenerate people do. That's what religious people do. Religious people cannot sing. That song we sang this morning, like we sing it and mean it. That cross is a wonderful, that bloody cross is a wonderful attraction to me. Why? Because God regenerated you. You could look at that cross and say, there's my Savior. He shed his blood for me. That's what ends up happening. Because of the great work of God. It's very simple, isn't it? It seems simple, and it is. But it is indeed a monergistic work of God. We are simply faithful men and women concerning the cross. So let me just close with just a couple things. Practical point. We again see in our text the pattern that Paul has been using in his, evangel- in his evangelizing. Again, this is why the Holy Spirit repeats it over and over again. And the boldness of his person. 
the boldness of his person. Paul is bold in his preaching. He's bold in the cross. He's bold in the gospel because he believes it. And he knows that only God can, can make this thing come to life. I can preach it, and I'll be faithful in it. But uh, again, as Steve and I were shocked, <laughs> we got in the car, we're looking at each other like, what just happened? Yes, you can persuade no one. The Spirit of God does the work. Amen? Actually, the Trinity of God in its work. The Father drawing. The Spirit regenerating. Therefore, the eyes are opened. And you look at that cross. And you see Christ. For who he is. Your Savior. So we see by these examples over and over again. These are Paul's dominant features in the text. We see the example of a man who knew no fear. And we can see a man who knew what he wanted to do and understood the gospel and presented it clearly and faithfully. Amen? That's really important for us, brother. We go out street preaching and stuff. Well, Brother Harrison, Brother Keith, Isaac, some of these guys, it's really amazing. Just know that Bible, Dean. Just, just, just verses. Just the Lord sticks it in there. You study it. That's what you confront with. Because that's what's being confronted, the gospel, the gospel of Christ against one of the most unholy, secular world systems we've ever seen, right in our own backyards. It's quite stunning and amazing. Let's pray. Father, we again see that how important it is as people who are Bible believers. And when we say Bible believe, when I say that, I mean one who believes every word that's in here. And uh, I have to say again, as we've been discussing, Dean and I and several others, just the depth of the word of God and 